Well, I don't know about you, but I have never in my life been interested in space. And I don't even not have an interest in it. I think I must have missed a huge topic at school because I've never had any knowledge of space either. But about six months ago, I was listening to a podcast and it was an interview with a Christian astronaut called Shane Kimbrough. Shane, at that point, was just about to leave to go to the International Space Station for his third time. Imagine that. Some people get to go to space three times in their life. Um, and as I say, I had no interest in space, but just the thought of a Christian astronaut being up there in space, orbiting the Earth, praying for us, just caught my imagination. I thought, that is absolutely wonderful. I am going to follow this guy on Instagram and find out a little bit more about the International Space Station. So if, like me, you have very poor knowledge of space, I will tell you a few facts about the International Space Station. So it orbits the Earth. That means go round it, for these, those with very low level. Um, it goes round the Earth um, once every 90 minutes. Um, it's about 250 miles above Earth, so it's going around every 90 minutes, which if you're good at maths as well as good at space, you will know that in a 24-hour period, that means it goes around the Earth 16 times. So these lucky astronauts get to see 16 sunrises and 16 sunsets in a 24-hour period. So I was quite fascinated by this and I started to follow Shane on Instagram. You might want to too. And um, every day he posts either a picture or a time-lapse video of what he can see out of his bedroom window. Um, and I don't know about you, but when I look out of my bedroom window, I just see my garden. But when Shane looks out of his bedroom window, he sees the earth and it's quite fascinating. He sees things from a completely different perspective. And I just wonder if today, when we look at God's word, he's asking us to look at a few things from a completely different perspective, a bigger perspective. We have been doing a series on the book of Acts, and today we're just going to back up a little bit, back to Acts chapter 1. Jesus was still with the disciples. It tells us at the start of the chapter that he's been meeting with them for 40 days. He's been appearing to them. In verse 3, it tells us that he's been telling them about the kingdom of God. So we're going to pick it up in verse 6. So Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid them from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand there looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Wow, that must have been quite a sight for the disciples. Let's go back to verse 6 and we'll just dive right into the passage. 
So the disciples, they gather around Jesus. First of all, I just love that image of them gathering around Jesus. And they ask the question, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Jerusalem? Or to, to Israel, they say. So the Jews in that time, they'd been living under the authority of the Romans. It was very oppressive to them. They were very limited in what they could do. As we read in the New Testament, it talks about the sort of evil tax collectors that take all their money to give to the Romans. Their life was pretty bleak and they longed for the Messiah to come. And they thought when the Messiah came that he would restore the kingdom to Israel. I think in their mind, it might have been a wee bit like if the ending of Braveheart had been that William Wallace reigned forever and ever as King of Scotland, but the Israeli version. I just thought that the Israel flag and the um, Scottish flag are both blue and white, and so they too could have painted their faces blue and white in this moment. I don't think they did, because they hadn't seen Braveheart. Anyway, I digress. They were... Um, they had their minds fixed on the problem in front of them, which they saw as being Israel's glory. They wanted the Messiah to restore um, Israel. They could see, like us seeing out of our window, they could see their back garden. But Jesus was saying, no, no, no. When I talk about the kingdom of God, I'm not talking about this. I'm talking about this. Right. However... The disciples were still looking out into their back garden and their back garden of their lives was pretty bleak. They were under oppression. They were crying out to Jesus for him to come and intervene. And sometimes when we look out into the back garden of our lives, sometimes they're full of sunshine and roses and other times things aren't so good. And you might be in a position today when you look out onto the back garden of your life where it's a bit bleak where you're crying out to Jesus to come and intervene. And as Chuck talked a wee bit about last week, sometimes we see Jesus break into situations and sometimes we don't. They say to Jesus, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They were desperate for Jesus to break in then. He responds in verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Time can frustrate us. And when we look at the Psalms in the Bible, people who wrote songs to God, many of them start with questions like, how long, why, answer me, Lord, when is this going to happen? Take Psalm 13, for example. It's just a short Psalm. It says, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer me. Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But then for the last two verses of the psalm, it kind of changes tack but I will trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Notice how the psalmist changes his tack in verses five and six. He's brought all his questions, all his concerns. He's laid himself bare on the table. 
And then when he does that, he receives God's perspective and he's able to turn his petition into praise. In fact, I think every psalm, apart from one, that starts with people coming to God with all their questions, all their worries, all their burdens, they end up with them praising God. Sometimes, when we lift our eyes to Jesus and we get his perspective on a situation, it doesn't necessarily take us out of our situation, but it just helps us to see that that's not all there is, that there's more and God is working. When we recognise that God is in control, God has a plan, his times are not necessarily our times, we can trust him and we can have his peace. If you're in a tough situation just now, I wonder if you just might turn your eyes to Jesus and ask him for his perspective on your situation. Corrie ten Boom, one of my favourite heroes of the faith, she famously said this quote, if you look at the world, you'll be dis distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. But if you look at God, you'll be at rest. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, our perspective on our situations can change. Jesus then goes on to give them two promises and a mission. After the disciples had asked Jesus when he's going to restore the kingdom, he turns their question back on them. They say, are you now going to do this? And he turns it back on them and he says, you will. So the two promises he gives them, the first promise is you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Not you might or you could, but you will receive power. And if you're a believer in Jesus, if you've asked Jesus to be Lord of your life, you have received the Holy Spirit and you can keep on receiving the Holy Spirit. And as we go through our series on Acts, we'll read many things are done by the power of the Holy Spirit. By the power of the Holy Spirit, rooms shake. By the power of the Holy Spirit, people speak in different languages. By the power of the Holy Spirit, believers preach the good news of Jesus with boldness. By the power of the Holy Spirit, lives are changed. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the dead are raised to life. By the power of the Holy Spirit, prisoners are set free, chains are broken, thousands are added to their number each day. And that, spoiler alert, is just in the first few chapters of Acts. Romans 8 verse 11 reminds us that the same power which raised Christ from the dead lives in us. And that is some power. I wonder if today you need to zoom out your perspective on God's power in your life. I wonder if you need to remember that you are a vessel of the Holy Spirit and that he comes in power. I wonder if you need to pray like the disciples prayed in Acts chapter 4 verse 29. When they were being persecuted, they prayed this. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. I mean, let's face it, the disciples were an uneducated bunch. They were a bit unruly. 
They were a bit unreliable and useless most of the time. But when the Holy Spirit came on them, he came with power. And God's church expanded throughout the world. And it's still expanding to this day. And God uses us. When God gives us a command to do something, he also gives us his power to do it. We don't need to rely on our own strength. We use his power, which is immeasurable. So that's the first promise. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. The second promise is, you will be my witnesses. So what is a witness? A witness, the Greek word for witness has two meanings. So we look at the first meaning. It means to be a truth teller. So if you're called as a witness in court, you're called to give a truthful account of what has happened. So you might say, this happened, he said that, she said this. It's a truthful account. Now, I quite like this meaning because I'm not very good at answering tricky questions about God or about the Bible. In fact, last week we were on holiday and the conversation came up about where dinosaurs fitted into creation. Now, a wee bit like space, I have no interest in dinosaurs either. So not only do I not care about that, I don't know where they fit into the creation story. And I'm so glad that God doesn't call us to have all the answers to be witnesses for him. We need to be truth tellers. And I do know that I used to live my life without Jesus. And now I live my life with Jesus. And my life with Jesus means that I know I have hope. I have peace. I have a future. I have a purpose. I'm forgiven. I'm called a child of God. I know that I'm never alone. And I could go on and on about the difference that Jesus makes in my life. And I think when Jesus is calling us to be a witness, he's just asking us to be truth tellers, to tell people the difference that Jesus makes in our life. Just like in John chapter 9, there was a man born blind and Jesus heals him. And the Jewish leaders aren't very happy about this and they call him to them and they ask him all these questions about Jesus. And he basically says, I don't know who the guy was. I don't know if what you're saying about him is true, but I do know that once I was blind and now I can see. He just tells them the difference that Jesus has made in his life. And that's what we are called to do. We don't have to be great theologians to be witnesses for Jesus. We need to just give a truthful account of our experience of him. The second meaning of witness is a bit more uncomfortable because it means being a martyr. And perhaps Jesus was giving the disciples a wee heads up here that things weren't going to be a bed of roses. Yes, they were going to receive his power. Yes, they were going to be truth tellers, but it was going to come at a cost. And as we'll read, as we go through Acts, the disciples were, they were persecuted, they were tortured, they were imprisoned. Some of them were even put to death for being witnesses for Jesus. So it's not always easy being a witness for Jesus, but the Bible does promise us in many, many verses that God will never leave us and he will never forsake us. So the two promises, you will, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses. And what's the mission or where's the mission? He says in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
in one sense, Jesus is giving them a bit of a blueprint for what's going to happen in Acts. They start off in Jerusalem and then they're persecuted and they scatter to Judea and Samaria. And then they go further into the ends of the earth. They move into other countries and the gospel is spread. And I have heard this passage spoken on and people have said that you could think of your areas of witness being like Jerusalem, being the area of people, the people that you live with, people you work with, people that you see on a regular basis. Um, that is your mission field for Jerusalem. And then Judea and Samaria, which were the areas surrounding Jerusalem, you could think of them being like the country you live in. So how are you being a witness in your country? How are you praying for your leaders? And then the ends of the earth being, well, the ends of the earth. Are there missionaries that you're supporting? Are there organisations that you're financially giving to to enable the word of God to be spread across the world? And whilst I think it's helpful to think of these, these sort of spheres of where you're being a witness, I think what Jesus is really saying here is wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whoever you're speaking to, be my witnesses. I once read this book a few years ago called The Gospel Hum Comes with a House Key. It was about radical hospitality. And um, it was rather exhausting, actually, because the author, before 6am every day, had walked her dogs, filled her slow cooker with enough food to feed her community. She had done a workout and homeschooled her children whilst doing her neighbour's laundry. And um, I just found it rather exhausting. But one thing I really did like was she saw everybody that she came into contact with as being an image bearer of God, who needed to know whose image they were created in. The Bible tells us that we are made in God's image. And so she made it her mission that everybody that she met, she would see them as being an image bearer of God. I wonder what our lives would look like if we treated everyone we came across as if they were an image bearer. What would that look like when you are walking back to your car and you see the traffic warden just putting the ticket on your window? Are you about to share your faith with that person? What would it look like if we asked God for his zoomed out perspective on his heart for his people to come to know him? I find that personally very challenging because God's heart for his image bearers isn't like this. It's like this and beyond. You might be thinking that's all very well for people who are out and about in their communities and they see lots of people, but what if the reason you're watching online church today is because you're housebound? What if you don't see many people? Well, I just want to encourage you with this wee story. In 1955, there was a lady called Dorothea Clapp and she lived in New Jersey in the States. And she had a neighbour called George, who was a young boy. And she decided in 1955 she would start praying for George. She didn't just pray that George would become a Christian. She prayed that George would become a missionary. When George was 16, he went to a Billy Graham rally in New, Jer New, New Jersey. I even say it with the accent. <laughs> that wasn't a tongue twist. That was intentional, that New Jersey. <laughs> George gave his life to Christ at that Billy Graham rally. He then went on to Bible college, and after Bible college, he started the 
the organisation called Operation Mobilisation, or OM as I will call it, because I do get tongue twisted saying Operation Mobilisation. Operation Mobilisation's mission is to be a witness for Jesus to the ends of the earth. And in fact, there's a family in our online community who served for many years on one of the, the OM ships and they went round the world telling people about Jesus. What started in 1955 with one lady praying for one boy is now in 2021 an organisation with nearly 7,000 people working in 118 countries across the world telling people about Jesus. Never underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit when you pray. Who is God asking you to pray for? It could be your postie. It could be your delivery driver. It could be a person that you see walking to school every day. Ask God to put someone on your heart. Maybe you too will pray for them to become a missionary. Let's ask God for a zoomed out perspective on his heart for people to come to know him. The final thing I want to talk about today is the cloud of glory. When we look at verse 9, it says, After he said this, that's Jesus, after Jesus said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid them from their sight. He didn't just keep going up and up and up until they couldn't see him anymore. And Luke, the author of Acts, wasn't just describing the weather when he said that a cloud hid him. The cloud would have been very significant to the disciples because all through the Old Testament, when God came in a cloud, that's where his glory dwelled. We read in numerous occasions where the, the cloud of glory descends on places. So it descends on the tent of meeting. It descends on the tabernacle. It descends on the temple. I'm just going to read a verse from 1 Kings chapter 8. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. I wonder if when the disciples saw the cloud hiding Jesus, it was yet another eye-opening moment for them. They'd walked with Jesus for three years, done ministry with him. They'd seen him crucified. They'd seen his resurrected body. They touched his wounds. They'd eaten meals with this resurrected Jesus. But I wonder if at that moment, when the cloud hid Jesus, they were standing there gobsmacked, not because Jesus was levitating and defying gravity and going up and into the sky, but I wonder if they were gobsmacked because they saw the glory of the Lord. I wonder if that moment, their perspective of Jesus went from this to this. I wonder what your perspective of Jesus is today. When you think of Jesus, do you think of a man with long hair and a cloak and sandals like you might see in a children's storybook Bible? Maybe you picture him crucified on the cross. Maybe you picture his resurrected body and him showing the disciples the nail holes in his, in his hands. John shares with us in Revelation chapter 1 
his vision of the risen Lord Jesus. Let me read it to you. And if you want to have a zoomed out perspective of Jesus today, I wonder if you might close your eyes and picture the Jesus that John saw. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like burning bronze, glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his hand, he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the shining sun in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And look, now I am alive forever and ever. John, who had walked with Jesus for his entire ministry until he was taken into heaven, he fell down face first at the feet of Jesus when he saw this picture of the resurrected Jesus because he just got a bigger, a bigger vision of the risen Lord Jesus. And this is the Jesus that we worship. And the utterly amazing, utterly mind-blowing, utterly beautiful, yet utterly truthful thing is that this is the Jesus that wants to have a relationship with me, wants to have a relationship with you, and he's calling you today to come and have a bigger perspective of him. Finally, the passage says, they were looking intently up into the sky, and as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who was taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. The men in white, not the men in black, they deliver the message that Jesus is coming back again. Apparently one in 20 verses in the New Testament talk about Jesus coming back again. And 1 Thessalonians tells us to encourage one another with these things. Jesus is coming back again. And I hope you're encouraged today that he's given us his power. He's given us the mission of going to be his witnesses to whoever we come across. And he's given us this picture and revelation of the risen Lord Jesus, who is cheering us on. This is the Jesus that we worship. I wonder if today you might ask God for a zoomed out perspective of the power that you have by the Holy Spirit, a zoomed out perspective of God's heart for everyone to come to know him and a zoomed out perspective of the risen Lord Jesus, who we worship. Just gonna spend a wee bit of time just now in response. And I'm just gonna pray for a few things. So if there's something that I've talked about today that resonates with you, um, you might just want to hold out your hands and ask God to come by his Holy Spirit and speak to you in that situation.
So let's pray just now. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for its richness. I thank you how it speaks to us. And I want to pray just now, Lord, and ask your Holy Spirit to come for people who are in a situation that's pretty bleak, that they need your perspective on. Would you come by your Holy Spirit, bring them peace, help them to turn their eyes to you and to see your perspective on their situation. Father, I pray for us who want to know more of your power in our lives. We thank you for the power that we have by the Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that you would come and fill anybody who's watching the service just now with your Holy Spirit, that they would know the power of the Holy Spirit. Like the believers, we prayed for boldness, that they would be filled with boldness by your Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to be your witnesses. And Father, I pray that you would put on our hearts people in our lives, people that we come across who need to know you. Lay on our hearts a burden to pray for someone, maybe for someone to become a missionary. I pray that you'd just be popping names into people's minds just now of people to pray for. And I pray, Lord, for people who need to have a bigger vision of you today. That you would show them more and more of who you are and what you want to do in their lives. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, who has the power to save. Amen.